It was a large, old reading room in the basement of an old Victorian building in an old village in old New England. The room was a sea of dusty old wingback chairs, grouped in twos, facing round small tables. One could not walk a straight line from the double doors to the fireplace at the far end. A dozen people could be in the room and not see anyone else but the person opposite. This was the hometown of an obscure writer of short, weird fiction from the turn of the last century. And I thought these stories from original manuscripts would be a crowning addition to my thesis on Transitional Short Fiction of the Late 19th and Early 20th Century. It was to be my grand opus and would cement my position as the rising star of the English department. But time was short. It had taken me hours to navigate the narrow country roads to get here. Why did these types of writers always live in such backwater places? I arrived in time to stick my foot in the door, just as the old maid librarian was closing it. After a few minutes of very picturesque begging and pleading, she showed me to the archive room, which was next to the reading room, and left, telling me to lock the door on my way out. After an hour of collecting material, I dragged it to the empty reading room and sat down to my study. I was tired and must have fallen asleep because suddenly I was shocked awake by a deep voice which seemed to come from a wingback chair on the other side of the room. These stories are much more interesting when they are heard rather than read, it said. Listen, and you'll hear what I mean. Here is a story about just another night shift. A Game of Chance by Henry Leferent and Sylvia B. Salzburg There is an artificial quiet about the wards of a hospital, more oppressive than the muteness of the dead, but the silence of a laboratory speaks. The centrifuge whirls in frenzy at your touch, a dancing dervish yielding to the breath of its god. The glassware tinkles like the joyous laugh of a child at its mother's approach. Incubator doors open wide, saying, Here are treasures. Dig and find. I worked late that night, later than usual. Free at length from the interruptions of a feverish day, I felt reasonably certain of my security. True, for the night I was riding fourth bus, as we term an assignment to the fourth ambulance. But only in an extremity would I be called out. One day, an excursion boat disgorged its passengers half a mile out in the bay. Every ambulance in the city took its turn then, even the obsolete one-horse contraptions of the last generation. Only a month before, a ten-story, widely advertised bakery in the neighborhood well, days after, the emergency wards reeked with the odor of burnt blood. Selfishly, I admit, I hoped that the night would pass without a community misfortune. Enough of individual calamity had already crowded my day to capacity. My fellow interns accused me of keener interest in the human angle of a hospital than in the medical. I accept their banner with amusement. I have never confided to any of them the problem that calls me to the laboratory every night. 
I picked up another length of glass tubing, held it in the flame to the point of fluidity, then with a quick movement spun it out to the desirable length. A neat pile of these capillary pipettes, made in spare moments, lay spread on a bed of cotton batten beside me. Glistening, flexible, attenuated bits of glass thread drawn from a matrix of coarse glass tubing. In this fashion, too, had some master hand molded that girl with whom I had been talking during visiting hours, held her in the fires of experience to the point of dissolution, then twisted her sharply to a sensitive, fine-spun, fragile point, a vessel for poison or elixir, as chance might provide. She had no visitors. A tribute to the innate tenacity of the human organism it was that the blow of the man she called her husband had not killed her. Spun glass with the strength of steel. The far-off rattle of dishes from the kitchen preparatory to the serving of a midnight meal to the night staff emphasized my isolation. I decided to dispense with this midnight exchange of pleasantries. Peace and the comfort of undisturbed pursuits filtered through my tired brain. A glorious night of work if I chose to take it. I could wedge in a few minutes of sleep the next day. Even the garrulous morgue keeper, whose tongue more than compensated for the many dumb ones in his domain, and who could be expected two or three times of an evening to warm up, had gone. To visit a married daughter, he said. I remember wondering whether he jounced his grandchildren on his knee, taught them tricks, and told them stories as other grandfathers do. Why not? There are men who make a living on hanging. I pulled down the blue blind with ill-concealed irritation. A white light had suddenly spread over the courtyard, and blending with my microscope lamp had paralyzed the effects of its rays. In the room where the light appeared lay a large Swede, too big for the ordinary hospital cot. He had been carried in that morning, still talkative. By sundown, his jaw wore the grin of death. His limbs were rigid, his eyes glazed. Two days previous, an ordinary carpet tack had pierced his thumb. I felt in my pocket for the morgue key which the keeper had left with me. They might be coming for it any minute now. Slide after slide, about a hundred and all, passed in review under the eye of my microscope. Gradually, Swede and girl, morgue keeper, ambulance, hospital, everything dwindled to the relative size of the minute creatures whose habits had absorbed me so completely. The organisms themselves, to the naked eye, were mere films upon a glass side, ursup in my world that night, the place these other people had assumed. Caught in the attitudes of life by the mordant I had applied, whole colonies of micrococci, villages, towns, and nations, a veritable Pompeii of them, bared intricacies of structure heretofore unreported in any journal of bacteriology. Not that I could claim as yet to have made a vital discovery. Only the presence of tiny specks on the surface of the microcochlei, specks in each cell, consistently arranged in a characteristic formation, stimulated my imagination to the point of unreality. Further investigation would be necessary before I could interpret their function. Further investigation, 
A whole day must intervene, a day of petty routine labors, of hospital rounds, of... Might they not be the figures of some primitive karyokinetic process? The forces of some undeveloped sex instinct? The analog, as it were. The blood rushed to my head so that I could no longer see clearly. Door after door of science swung open at the magic news of my discovery. Rocks moved, fish talked, a hundred stained slides of micrococcus hematoids had conquered the world. The whirl of a bus engine close to my window, beyond the window, around the corner of the laboratory building to the morgue. The human mind at times is capable of a peculiar dual activity. While the focus of my consciousness centered on the illimitable possibilities of what I suspected was a sexual phase in the development of these lowest of plant forms in the periphery of my consciousness, I concluded that a new driver must be handling the bus. Simultaneously, the two channels of thought continued their parallel course. What if these ultra-microscopic specks were the very entrails of life in its formative stage? The old chauffeurs knew that the procedure was to turn to the right before the laboratory was reached and draw up at the emergency door, while a porter summoned by the cacophonies of the bus bell would be waiting with a wheeled stretcher. If I asked to be released of a portion of my routine duties, perhaps there would be time to complete my investigations and obtain a hearing at the National Bacteriologist before the end of the year. Credit would always rebound to the hospital. But the bell hadn't sounded. The bus had remained at the morgue door. There was the one conclusion. Damn that woman, I heard Gleason say as he came up behind him. The driver and a policeman who had apparently accompanied them had already tilted the stretcher from the rear of the bus. Without commenting on Gleason's remark, I bent over the dead woman. Under a dirty nightgown, probably they had found her so, that clung tenaciously to her body as if it had not been removed for days, the woman's configuration was clearly discernible. Swollen legs, distended stomach, bulbous breast, Soggy skin hung from her arms and cheeks. Her lips, slightly parted in the relaxation of death, showed a marked outline of blue, the purplish blue consequent to the inhalation of illuminating gas. I turned on Gleason. Damn that woman, he swore again, more viciously, continuing to brush the dust from his glossy white uniform. Gas company was there when I arrived. Pull motor brought her around. Damn fool turned up her toes just as the bus got started. The policeman, making entries in a small black notebook, grinned his assent. Like the mercury in a thermometer, I felt my temperature rising to burst its bounds. Gleason was a music lover, or claimed to be. Once a week, he and his fiancée permitted themselves the luxury of a concert. But an intern's salary is hardly elastic enough to include both the fine imposed upon him for bringing in a dead patient and the price of a pair of tickets. He and his fiancée would be forced to endure each other's company at home or in some neighborhood moving picture house. Damn that woman! To avoid argument with Gleason, I swung on my heel and followed the stretcher into the morgue. Our feet scraped jarringly on the concrete floor. None of the external reverence and awe which custom, or perhaps fear, 
accord to the dead, marked the temporary disposal of Mary Malloy. There she goes, boy. Shove her in. Watch out for the pigtail. Mary Malloy, age 36. The policeman, kind enough to relieve me of the duty, wrote her name on the tag with a flourish, rubbed his hands energetically as if washing them of the whole affair, and bade us a cheerful good night. The chauffeur lifted the heavy zinc cover, rattled it into place, once more tucked in Mary Malloy's reticent braid of thick black hair, then thumped soundly on the cover to ensure the stability. Night, doctor. Guess she's safe. Good night. The discordant clatter of zinc, mingling with our voices, reverberated down the corridor, bounded away from the closed metal doors of the locker room and the autopsy theater, and returned twofold to the morgue proper. Side by side, bottom to top, the niches of the dead were embedded in the concrete wall. Four rows, five in a row, like pigeonholes in a gigantic desk. Sometimes when covers closed the front of all of them, they reminded me more of boxes on the shelves of a shoe shop, all of one size, one color, one shape, with black figuring and lettering for more convenient identification. Only that in a shoe shop, one pair of shoes occupies one box. Here, newborn babies are huddled six and eight in a niche to save room until a truck from the Department of Charities comes to cart them off, and in times of stress, when the undertakers are busy, I let myself into the laboratory by a narrow, almost unknown door connecting the two buildings. Marguerite Judson was waiting for me. All the iciness of the morgue melted from me while I watched from a corner how she adjusted and readjusted the cap on her shining bobbed hair, cut sharply across the forehead in the manner of little boys. I could see two of her from my hiding place, one in the flesh, slim with compressed energy, one in the long glass door she was using as a mirror. I'm on duty in Ward 6 tonight, she would say when I hemmed or booed at her from the door. I saw your light burning. Everybody's asleep. I thought I'd come down. Silly play acting, of course, as if she didn't know that apologies were unnecessary, but nevertheless a delightful opening for whatever we had to say each other. Unfortunately, she had been on night duty for a month, and I on day. I resolved to remain concealed for another few minutes until the caps should conform to her idea of what would attract me most. It would be too cruel to her to appear before. Then, entirely without forethought, my gaze wandered off to the table where I had left the tubes with which I had been working. Marguerite Judson, I bit out sternly. She shrank against the wall, covering her mouth with the back of her hand in fright. I cleared the room in two strides. You nurses could drive a corpse mad, I cried. You've disarranged my tubes. Though they were glorious colors, I suppose. Thought you'd like to play with them. In the operating room, you're afraid to touch an instrument. You women, ugh. Up went Marguerite Judson's head. Her sudden recuperation should have been a warning. Had I called her an incompetent individual or a meddling female, she might have humbled herself sweetly and later proved to me the injustice of my opinion. But when a man incriminates the whole of womankind for what a woman believes is some personal fault of her own, 
On behalf of her sex and her profession, Marguerite Judson slammed the door. In a fury, I swept my disordered tubes back into the incubator. I pulled out my watch. Two o'clock. At that hour, the omnipotence of micrococulus hematoids no longer seemed a thing of the immediate future. Work, work, and years of harder work. A cutting wind blew in from the morgue under a crack in the door. It cooled my puerile anger. Marguerite Judson, I felt convinced at the time, would never talk to me again. Why had Mary Malloy resorted to suicide? Gleason would sing another tune in the morning when the local news appeared with a sob-encrusted account of the valiant young ambulance surgeon who had fought tirelessly to save the suicide's life. I was tired, dead tired. To another in my state, I would have given sound advice. But because I had goaded myself beyond the point where exhaustion ceases to be exhaustion and becomes nervous irascibility, I cast about persistently for some interest to keep me awake. The silence of the laboratory taunted me now. Still it said, here are treasures, dig and find, but I knew that I could not dig and find unless I insured myself against interruption. I walked through the laboratory, closing up for the night, unwilling to leave, hoping against hope that something would detain me. A guinea pig I had bled late in the afternoon squealed like a rubber toy at my approach. I fed him a few lettuce leaves and a handful of oats. Two white mice, who should have been torpid with pneumonia, were chasing each other up and down the miniature stairs in their infirmary. From the confines of an alcohol jar, the lidless eyes of a two-headed infant monster followed me about uncannily. All at once, the muteness of the morgue enticed me. I had no business to go up to my room after all, for on the autopsy table, the keeper had left for me the disemboweled body of a woman, the cause of whose death the coroner's physician had been unable to discover. I had a theory about that woman. The morgue keeper would be down early next morning to sew up the coroner's cut, lest his infraction of the rules be discovered by some early prowling undertaker. The woman's family would come for their dead. I only wanted her heart anyway. As I returned to the morgue, locking the little door behind me, I recalled what the hospital historian had told me of the family. Likely as not, she would be in her niche another day or two until the matter could be settled amicably. Two men had come into the office, each within a short time after the woman's death, each with a marriage certificate and several pictures, each claiming to be her husband. Would the third man, under whose name she had entered the hospital, assert his rights in the morning? Had there really been a third man? I switched on the white lights. Another gust whirled through the morgue, twisting and turning the tags on the covered pigeonholes until their scraping against the metal sounded like the gnawing of rats from within. The odor of death, obstinate despite disinfection, more obstinate now because of the Eunice cadaver, exposed all day, seemed to saturate my clothes instantly, as a single plunge into water will saturate them. From the center of the slate table, a drainpipe dripped a mixture of clotted blood, body fluids, and water into a tin pail below. 
I found myself crossing the morgue to the steady rhythm of it. One, two, three, four. Drip, 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 drip. Some fascist nurse, wearying of the endless one-inch bandage and square knot, had tied the woman's jaw with a three-inch bandage, securing the band by a flippant bow over the left ear. Instead of the usual impression of a corpse with a toothache, the variation in method produced a corpse decked out for a party. In the reoccurring drafts that whistled through the door, the blood-stiffened ends of the bow fluttered and grazed each other. Contrary to rules, a pair of imitation jade earrings and a ring to match had been left on the body. The right arm dangled limply over the edge of the table. It interfered with my work, annoyed me, in fact, for it scraped against my trousers every time I bent over, like fingers trying to pick my pocket. I lifted out the woman's heart. I examined it. In the gross, nothing was to be seen. I weighed it in my right hand, normal to the touch, yet inside. I suspected that Beaker, at St. Sebastian's, would be profuse in his thanks for that heart. Quite suddenly, then, as a dog will bark at some unseen danger, or a cat arch her back, my hand remained suspended in midair. I knew that I was not alone. One, two, three, four. Drip, 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 drip. All doors were locked. The dead were dead. Yet I knew I was not alone. Close upon the conviction came the sound of footsteps in the corridor, of short labored breathing, of heavy bodies zigzagging, it seemed to me, now to one side of the corridor, now to the other. What could I do? I slipped the heart into my coat pocket. Where could I hide? I did not believe in spectacular heroics. When I learned the purpose of the intruders, there would be time enough to sound the alarms. I slunk into the only shadowed and sheltered corner of the morgue. The footsteps close upon me halted. Voices. She's mine, I'm telling you. The devil she is! We'll see. Over the autopsy table, the two men leaned with ghastly unconcern. I could not see them well, but their necks, red, thick, and dirty, told the story of their faces. The first speaker opened his mouth. The smell of whiskey reached me. His tongue bunched and stumbled. All dressed up, ain't you, darling? He whined, fingering the splattered bow. All dressed up and waiting for me, eh? I fancied his voice, coming though it was, boasted a tinge of triumph. The other fellow's head rolled unsteadily. I got pictures, he mumbled. Pictures and everything. You ain't gonna. I tell you what. Something at the moment incomprehensible to me passed between the two sodded figures. In a trice they were kneeling. The table cut them from my view. The rattle of small objects, perhaps buttons or stones, rose sharply above their asthmatic wheezing. Buttons or stones? Curiosity made me bold. I took a step out of my corner. Neither man noticed me. I took another, then another. I was behind them. Drip, 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 drip. One, two, three, four. Under the very pennant hand of the woman, the two men were shooting dice. I fingered the heart in my pocket. 
Through a lifetime it had been the physical symbol of what these men desired. Over and over the dice fell sharply on the cement. Now one man leered with approaching victory. Now the other snatched it from his grasp. Oaths filled the gaps. The ring of metal startled them. They looked around. Fortunately, not my direction. The bit of imitation jade set in gold had dropped from the woman's finger. You talking, babe? The loquacious one laughed raucously at his own humor. He gave the hanging hand a generous squeeze. Once more their heads swayed toward each other. More desperate rattling of dice. The game resumed. I have no standard to judge the passing of time. The far-off rattle of dishes announced preparation for the last meal of the retiring night staff. A bus bell clanged. A light in the maternity operating room blazed. I turned up the collar of my meager twill coat. The tension became unbearable. Slowly, cautiously, a half foot at a time, I edged toward the door. Concentration engulfed the men. One, two, three, four. Drip, 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 drip. It struck me that the joy of the winter would be an unholy sight. I could not stay. My fellow interns, I think I've told you, accuse me of unscientific reactions. The End I must have fallen asleep again. The next thing I remember was the librarian's voice from the hall outside. That damn young fool didn't lock the door, it said. Times aren't what they used to be. I ducked low and crept out when she wasn't looking. The whole drive back, all I could think about were those marvelous stories. Such marvelous stories. <laughs>